please open up your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 49, where we will be picking right back up where we left off last week. Today we will finish, Lord willing, of the, of, the, of the book of Genesis, but we also will see the family future, or Jacob will give his last witness and testimony in a beautiful way for some, and some it's like, uh-oh, this is harsh reality that's hitting me, what's going to happen in my future, because he will, we see in many times people, a lot of commentators and people will think of, oh, he blessed his 12 sons here at the end. But we'll find out that for some it was a blessing. For some it will reveal they were actually a curse. They were actually, there's consequences of their sin that will go with them all the way through the tribe into the future. And God prophesies through what will happen in each of the 12 sons or the 12 tribes of Israel. And we will see that played out here in chapter 49. And then, of course, uh, we'll see the death of Jacob and the death of Joseph in chapter 49 and 50. There's also a revelation of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who had been promised to Jacob's people, if you remember right from the very beginning of Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, now to Joseph and to his sons, and we will see that as well tied here through this. And so as the Holy Spirit reveals these things to you, take note as he brings you and correlates that or connects that to the New Testament or to your life as we speak through uh, the scriptures today. But Jacob is 149 years of age now at this time. He's had a full life. And we see that now the torch has been passed off to his son Joseph. And we will see that as he continues that responsibility of that torch passing off to his younger son versus his oldest son Reuben. We'll see uh, as we uh, uh, go through. Chapter 49 verse 1. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear you sons of Jacob and listen to Israel your father. So when we look at these first two verses, Jacob in what would mount as his, his last significant patriarchal moment, he's about to die, he knows it, and he says, what is the most important thing I can say out of my mouth to those who I love? Now, wouldn't that be wonderful if we all had the opportunity when we're on our deathbed that we are able to have all the ones we love surrounding us and be able to say those last parting words of what you want to impart to those in your family? Not everyone's given that opportunity. Not everyone's. But I always encourage you should be telling your loved ones now how you feel. You should be telling them every day that you love them. You should be telling them every day and because and like, you have no guarantee for the day. You don't have a guarantee for tomorrow. So how can you... I think you're in control of your life. And so here Jacob has the moment and God has given him together to gather all his sons, his 12 sons. And notice at the end of verse 1, he says, I'm going to shall befall you or I'm going to tell you in the last days. In the last days, we see it 14 times in the Old Testament. In the last days refers to prophecy. He's going to prophesy to his sons what God is revealing to him of what is going to happen to them and their family. And we're going to see that. And so he gathered them together, his sons there, and he looks this and he says, and he says, and, and here's the very first conscious prophecy spoken by a man in the Bible right here that God prophesies through Jacob 
to his sons and take note of that prophecy here. Now, Reuben is the very first one here in verse 3. Now, we don't know how and why and what was played out in the scene here in his room, but all we know is that um, Dad sat up on the edge of his bed. God is strength by the, the will, uh, the, by the power of God to get up to be able to, to greet uh, Joseph and, and his sons. And they're in the room. Remember, his eyes are dim, so he can't see them. So he had, they're really close to him. You know they had to be close for him to see them. But he naturally goes to the firstborn son, Reuben, here in verse 3. And he says, Reuben, you are my firstborn. My might in the beginning of my strength, the ex excellency of dignity and, the, and ex the excellency of power. So he says, Reuben, you're my, my first boy. Everything is intended in that culture that the first boy receives all the inheritance, all the patriarchal decisions in the future. When dad dies, he rules and oversees what goes on for his lineage and his inheritance. And all the money and all the double portion comes to him. And it was already given to him, as we saw in previous chapters, he was already given a double portion. He was given a double portion because of his two sons as well, right? And so we see this all, as the blessing has already come to him, but here he's reminded, it, looking at Reuben, that you should be my might, you should be my strength, you should be who represents the family here. But that's not how it plays out. The prophecy, then he says, unstable as water, Reuben. You're, you're unstable as water. You shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed and then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Now, it's a very interesting little way he says this to Reuben. He's prophesying, telling Reuben at the same time at the very end. You see a little dash in your Bible. And then he says, he went up to my couch. It's almost like he was talking to himself at that moment. He went up to my couch. My oldest son went up to my, defiled my bed. Now, what happened? You know the story. Rachel had died, and there must have been a tremendous emotional moment happening within the family. Dad was a mess. Everyone's a mess. Rachel is, is now gone. And Reuben, being unstable as water, emotional man, chooses to go and sleep with Dad's one of dad's, Rachel's maids, or one of his other wives, Bilhah, in his own father's bed. He defiled it. So 40 years previously, when that all took place, when you go back and read Genesis 35, when that all took place, Bilhah is the same mother who has, had sons Dan and, and Naphtali. Reuben slept with his father's wife, Bilhah, right in his own bed. And he says, can you believe it? He, he, he was on my couch. Now, if you remember back in 35, dad said nothing. He never dealt with the issue. Dad was passively. He wasn't walking with God like he would, should have been. And he let that pass. But here we are 40 years later. Now it's being dealt with. The sin of lust is now being dealt with in the life of Reuben. And God is using Jacob to give the prophecy that you're an unstable man. You have no, you're not stable as a patriarch, as a leader. You have to have a character, a godly character of stability. You're not to be an emotional wreck. You're not to have the highs and lows and going crazy and spontaneous so much where you are unknowingly, you, you, people can't lead or follow you because you're just 
unstable as water. So through the wisdom and great wisdom of God, he took the authority that should have traditionally happened in Reuben, and he then divides that up. He no longer gives the blessing, the priesthood, and the ruling authority all in one under that man Reuben. Instead, God decentralizes that authority among the sons of Israel, and Reuben paid a high price for his instability of character. A leader is to have a stable consistent, reliable character in their life. Men, you as head of the household must grow and mature so you are a stable, mature character so that you can lead your family. It's critical that God does a work in your life to lead your family. So you see that this lust of sin had a tremendous impact on Reuben in his future because you will not excel. And we know by history, we know by studying all the scripture, no, no prophet, no judge, no king, no leader came out of the tribe of Reuben. None. Because God said that sin had to be dealt with, and he did. Now, we see now in verse 5, the next two sons, Simeon and Levi, are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not your soul enter their council. Let not your honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So the next two brothers, again, we don't know what the sequence is. We do know as we look at this, he kind of, Jacob first deals with the first six sons here of Leah, his first wife. Then comes the, the maidservants, and he'll finishes up there with Rachel, the, one, the wife that he really loved. Because remember, Leah, he, he didn't want to marry Leah. He only wanted to marry Rachel, and his father-in-law deceived him. And when he was supposed to sleep with Rachel that night uh, of the wedding, he slipped Rachel, didn't let Rachel go in. He slipped uh, Leah in there into the, to the bedroom, and he ended up coming out with not just one wife, but four wives. <laughs> Things didn't go well, as you remember, as we studied that at great length. But here we see... Simeon and Levi, their brothers, and God reveals through Jacob what is their life. What is their life like? They're instruments of cruelty. Their hearts were so wicked. Their minds thinking evil were so wicked. Remember, these are the brothers who, when they found out that Dinah, their sister, was raped by the up in Shechem, the, uh, uh, they came up with a plan to try to get revenge and come against the tribe up there and who went and raped their sister. So remember, dad was part of the deal in some way because they were working out. They weren't even supposed to be in Shechem, if you remember. And when they were there and they were working out a deal, the, the Canaanites and all of them, they were like, we want you to be part of the tribe, be part of the town, be part of the city, because you're a very wealthy man. We want to get some of your wealth from you. You have lots of flocks. You have lots of people. We love your women. We want to marry your women uh, <laughs> up there. So they were working out this deal, if you remember. But all along, the leaders of, that, uh, of Shechem, they convinced all the men, the only way we can be able to intermarry and have their wealth and be a part of it is every single male has to be what? Circumcised. And every single male agreed to be circumcised. 
Men, be very careful. Because when a man is driven by the flesh, they will do whatever it takes to get the money and the lust to be fulfilled. And those men were willing to get circumcised just to be able to have that. And what happened? These two men, Simeon and Levi, came up with a deal to get revenge on for their sister. And when they were all circumcised, they went around and circumcised every male. And then they were incapacitated. Unable to defend themselves, they came in and slew and killed every single one of those men. That was not the will of God. And even though Levi somewhat said that should have never happened, he did not discipline those men and, and deal with his sons, but God is now going to deal with him, and we see it prophesied right here, that this will take place, and because through your weakness, Jacob, at the time, now God is going to use Jacob to communicate clearly what will happen because these are just angry. So the sin of anger and the sin of cruelty they even not only killed these men in this town, but they also even, based on their self-will, out of pleasure, they found it fun to go and just hamstrung an ox. That means they came up right behind it and killed, uh, they, they, they sliced the tendons of these ox so that these beasts were suffering unnecessarily. That's how cruel and how wicked this, these, these two boys were in their heads. And because of the curse... Because now a curse is going to come upon them and wrath will be coming upon them. God says through Jacob, I'm going to take, and we know historically, Simeon, the tribe of the Semenites, are going to not actually own anything. It will eventually, they were the third largest of the tribes when you see back in Numbers chapter, 20, uh, chapter 1, verse 23. And after 35 years, God took them from the third largest tribe and dwindled them down to very little and dispersed them into the rest of the tribe of Judah. 63% of the tribe disappeared almost overnight and becoming one of the smallest tribes. And the only way they could survive is being part of the tribe of Judah just to survive. Now, Levi was also here prophesied they were going to be scattered. But God had a plan for that, that tribe. They became the priestly line. Remember? Reuben should have had been the priestly line, the, king, the, the leadership and, and blessings and all that. God said, no, no, I'm going to disperse that among. And they became the priestly line of the, of the nation of Israel. They did not own anything. They couldn't own anything, but they were dispersed among the 48 different towns within the different tribes so that they could do the priestly services for the nation of Israel, for the people within those towns. But they didn't own anything. So God's way of prophesying, of dividing and scattering, and he blessed Levi through that, but he cursed uh, Simeon because of that. And we see that take place. And you, you'll see it when we get into Numbers, into Exodus, and in Joshua. All of those play out in, uh, through your readings. In verse 8, we see now Judah. You are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp, well, mean cub, lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion and as a lion who shall arouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. 
until Shiloh comes. Note that word Shiloh. And to him, it should be a capital H, him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Can you imagine the next time you just want to want to praise and, and just bless your wife and you come up, oh, sweetheart, your, your teeth are so white, they're just as white as milk. Isn't that just sweet, sweet, sweet things you can say to your wife these days? But that's how they spoke back then. But here we see here that Judah will be the one that the rest of the brothers are going to praise. It's Judah who's going to be the brother, the, 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 the brother that will be raised up above all of them, the son. God is going to work through the tribe of Judah, and Judah will be the one who is now showing and, and seeing this, this, this character, this godly character that's being worked out in his life at the end of his life. Now remember, Judah was not a flawless man. <laughs> this man didn't start off well from the womb. He Remember, he's the one that had this great suggestion. Hey, bros, let's not kill Joseph and leave him in the pit. Let's sell him and make a money off of this man. Let's just sell our brother and let the Ishmaelites who's going down to Egypt, let them have him so we can at least make some money off him. So he, he had a bad heart in regards to selling off his brother there that we saw in Genesis 37. He also, if you remember, he did not deal faithfully with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, in Genesis 38. And he had sex with her as a prostitute, if you remember. But here we see over time God working in this man's life and has changed. And his godly and good character started interceding and offering him and bringing out. Because then at the very end of his life, we are in the end of the, the story here. We saw God use Judah, and Judah was willing to be the substitute for his brother when they had an exchange. Who would, who would Pharaoh keep? Who would, oh, in this case, who would this second man in charge of Egypt, which was Joseph, will keep? And he was willing to substitute himself to let Benjamin go, if you remember. And so he started seeing a change, and a godly leader will see those characters. A godly leader is not selfish. He's not a self-will. He's not looking for his own pleasure and his own gain and getting what he wants. He actually wants to lead others. He wants to give to others. He wants to help others. He's willing to substitute himself and sacrifice for the sake of another. That is a godly character of a godly man. And this is what we start seeing in the life of uh, Judah. We see in Revelation 5.5, Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now notice here in the verses here, I said to make sure you circle and make note, until Shiloh comes. The leadership prophecy of Shiloh, who is, means um, we get shalom or peace, or in this case, the, P, the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, comes. Shiloh, Jesus himself, the Prince of Peace, comes. We see this, that this leadership prophecy took 640 years to fulfill in part of the reign of David to come in line of Judah's dynasty of, of kings. And then ultimately, as we were watching and seeing God work through the tribe of Judah to bring about the king or King David for the nation of Israel... Ultimately, the king of kings, Jesus Christ, Shiloh, 
came 1,600 years later from this point, and that's what was referred to as prophesying until Shiloh comes. Remember, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. The leadership or the governance of the nation of Israel or the nation under Judah, that scepter will not be depart, nor a lawgiver, meaning the law will drive the nation of Israel until when? Until the grace of God comes, until Shiloh comes, the, the Prince of Peace comes. Did you catch those verses? The leadership, the governance, by the law of God will go until when Shiloh appears, in this case referring to Jesus Christ. Now, if you know histor histor historically, from D David until the Herods came into place, a prince of Judah was head over Israel even when Daniel was in captivity. And according to historian Josephus, the promise was that Israel would keep their scepter until Shiloh comes, meaning they would have the ability to govern themselves or have rule and to say capital punishment was the indication that a nation had uh, governance over themselves. Once you take away the capital punishment, you no longer govern yourself. So in this case, they understood this, and the rabbis understood this. So if you remember historically, when the, when, when they, when the Romans came in and they took away the capital punishment right as them to govern themselves, the rabbis historically went up and down just screaming and yelling because they believed and they understood that what the scripture says, that it was a tremendous disaster just took place because the unfulfillment of scripture that God said was going to happen. The scepter was not, the governance of themselves governing was not going to go away until Shiloh, the Prince of Peace, the Messiah, was going to be there. What they didn't understand and realize that Jesus had come. That's why they, that got, went away. They just didn't receive Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. They didn't see them as the Messiah. It could be the exact same time that we see the scripturally and time-wise is when, when Jesus went in as at 12 years of age, went into the temple and was actually conversing with them about the things of the scriptures. And they were blown away by this 12-year-old and how wise they were from God's word. But the religious leaders didn't get it. But we know by the scriptures exactly played out exactly the way they said it was going to happen. In verse 13, now we see Zebulon shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be a Sidon. So Zebulon, Jacob kind of skips the birth order here. And he's moving over to the 10th born and the 9th born sons here by keeping his focus on the sons born of Leah. So he wants to get all the sons of Leah together and tell them what their, the prophecy is. But the tribe of Zebulun, if you remember in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 33, is there's very key information there. He says he's noting the faithfulness to David, supplying the largest number of, of soldiers for David when he went into battle. So this was a very powerful army of men that lived in the tribe of, of uh, Zebulun. But it says, O Zebulun, there were 50,000 who went out to battle, expert in war with all the weapons of war, stout-hearted men who could keep 
ranks, 1 Chronicles 12.33. So God used that tribe to actually be an army to help King David at the time uh, for their purpose. Now, they dwelt in a land between the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee. They weren't fishermen or they weren't strong on the water. They actually partnered with the Phoenicians to make sure they moved their products, goods, and services, but they literally could see the, the sea uh, to the east and to the west. So they dwelt near and, and relied upon the sea, but they actually weren't right on the Mediterranean Sea or the Sea of Galilee. Verse 14, we see Eshekar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant, and he bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. So Ishakar became one of the largest tribes and the third in size according to Numbers 26. And they did a census, and that's what came out as showing the third largest of the tribes of the twelve. Now, why did they become a band of slaves? Well, we get a hint here is that they saw they loved their rest. They love relaxing. They love the easy life. They love just resting because it was really good and it pleased them. And when they did that and became so large but not really definitive of, of protection and doing what God's called them to do, they became now targets by the enemies. And they see historically they were targeted and, and, and the enemy took over and made them slaves many times over. Now we see the next one, the, 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 the son Dan, verse 16. Dan shall judge, or Dan means to judge, shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, underline that, Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path, that bites the horse's heels so that its riders shall fall backward. And then it's interesting, Jacob says, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Take note of this one. Because as you take a look at this, not only is Dan means to judge, but he's going to be judged. We know historically when we go back and even look at uh, you know, he dwelt in the, the Mediterranean uh, Sea area, the Philistine territory, and we see that in Joshua 19. But what happened was they weren't strong enough. They were very crafty, and they did some things that didn't go well. And if you remember, they couldn't drive out the Philistines, so what did they do? They went north and tried to take over some additional land north of them, which was outside and not part of what God's design was. And they became where they were judged, and they were coming against them all the time with their enemies. But one of the key things that came out of the tribe of Dan was judges. And the key judge was Samson. And we see that in Judges 13.2. Samson came out of the tribe of Dan. Now, Dan was this troublesome tribe. And, he, and, and one of the key things they troubled the nation of Israel is they became the first and introduced idolatry into Israel. We see that in Judges 18.30 where they started bringing in idol worshiping and bringing that. Remember jo uh, Jeroboam set up one of his adulterous golden calves in Dan in 1 Kings chapter 12? And then later Dan became a center of idol worship in Israel. And we, say, we see that in Amos chapter 8 verse 14. So that tribe, small, weak, couldn't drive out, wasn't doing what God's called them to do, and they ended up turning to false gods and allowing false gods coming and worship leaders, and it was downhill, obviously, uh, for there, for, for, the, for Dan. Now, 
Many commentators, when you study the verses here, uh, Dan shall be a serpent by the way, is referring to the fact that the Antichrist will come from the tribe of Dan. And they base that on Daniel chapter 11, verse 37, and Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 16, that the Antichrist will come from the tribe of Dan. Now, we also know that in the scriptures that Dan is left out of the listing of tribes regarding the 144,000. We see that in Revelations chapter 7, verses 5 through 8. But Dan is, though, noted as the first tribe listed in uh, Ezekiel's millennial roll call of the tribes that will happen in Ezekiel 48. So the tribe is still noted, but at the same time is not noted as part of the makeup of the 144,000 uh, virgin Jewish males who will be witnesses for the nation of Israel about the coming of the Messiah, or the return of the Messiah. And so, I've, so at the very end, he's sitting here prophesying, and God is revealing to him through a revelation that this is what's going to happen to the tribe of Dan, Something's terrible is going to happen in regards to the Antichrist or the evil one coming. And it's going to be working through the tribe of Dan. But at the very end, we see, I believe, where he kind of summarizes that. And he actually is, is praying directly to God at this moment, not to the actual uh, uh, the, the boy Dan. And he says, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Meaning the Hebrew word for salvation is Yeshua. And we see that's where we get the word uh, Jesus from. So Jacob really is, at this moment, is literally, if he knows it or not, is call, Jacob is calling out for Jesus at that moment when he just prophesied what was going to take place through Dan, which was not good in regards to what Dan's going to do. Idolatries and all these things, the Antichrist, potentially. Um, he saw a bigger picture, and obviously he called out to Jesus uh, at that moment. Now, in verse 40, uh, chapter 49, verse 19, he says, Gad, the next one, Gad means a troop, shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. So now we see Zilpah, which is Leah's maidservant, who became um, Jacob's uh, another wife for him, gives Jacob and bears children for him, <clears throat> and Gad is one of them. And he refers to the troop because they chose of land was on the east side of the Jordan, if you remember. They didn't want to go all the way in. They wanted to stay on the east side. That's where fertile land is. We'll stay right here. And they joined up with the few, half of Manasseh and another tribe on that other side. We see that in First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 14. But what is known for Gad as a troop is they supplied a lot of troops literally men to go fight in the promised land to gain the, the property that, uh, and work and fight with David to, to, to conquer some of the land. In the days of Jeremiah, and many times that we know historically in the scripture here, foreign armies oppressed Gad tremendously. We see that in Jeremiah 49.1. Because they were used so mightily, but because they were in a place on the other side of the Jordan that they wanted to stay, they became very vulnerable because of the enemies that lived on the other side of the Jordan. They didn't go all the way into the promised land that the way God designed it. Then we see here the next one, bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. So Asher means blessed or happy. 
In Deuteronomy 33, 24, Moses again took up this prophecy regarding Asher, and he says, Asher is the most blessed of sons. Let him be favored by his brothers, and let him dip his foot in oil. Apparently, the land eventually that was occupied by Asher was so good and so wonderful and so meaningful in regards to plentiful he had a lot of luxuries that other tribes did not have because he was able to grow a lot of the food. But we also see in the, in the history is that Asher and the tribe Asher were become the bakers or made cookies. They were the bakers of, as, a, as a main thing of what that tribe did uh, in the nation of Israel. We also see in verse 21, Naphtali. He is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. Now, if you remember, Naphtali's land was the key portion near the Sea of Galilee, the region where Jesus did much of his teaching and ministry. This tribe it was, was known for their eloquency or their use of words or beautiful words or bl blessing people with the words. Now, no surprise if Jesus is using that part of the area, they're being well taught that the people were sharing what they were taught. They became a tribe that used beautiful words that were coming from the Messiah himself when he came in. Now, if we go back and we look at the scriptures, we look in New Testament, Matthew chapter 4 Verse 12 through 16, and I'll read it. Um, it says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum. It was right there in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. So not only was it prophesied here by Jacob, but again in Isaiah was also prophesied this would take place. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light and upon those who sat in the reason, region and shadow of death light has drawn. So just looking at that prophecy of the fact that Jesus was coming into the region, he was going to be the light into the region. This is going to be a blessed tribe where Jesus, in, in the, as we see in the New Testament, will be dwelling and moving among the people there. So they became the speechwriters. They became the eloquencies up there in Naphtali. Then we get to verse 20 through 20, 22 through 26, and we see Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a well. His branches run over the wall. Those are three key verses or key sections of the verses there. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him, but his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong. By the hands of the mighty God of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you, with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the beasts and of the womb, and blessings of your father having excelled, the blessings of my ancestors upon the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separated from his brothers. So Jacob describes and prophesies what happens through Joseph. He's going to be very fruitful. It's going to be a fruitful tribe. He's going to, everything he's, he touches will be fruitful and will, be, will grow in front of everyone, will be very noticeable. And, he's, and it's like a fruit 
uh, fruitful, bound by a well, meaning he who's planted by the living water, the well of water. It brings you back to the, the psalm that like a tree planted by the, the rivers of water and in his due season will bear fruit, right? If you take note, he's going to be very fruitful. He's going to be prosperous. But also notice it is not the prosperity that God gives him is not for himself. Notice the verse there. It says his branches run over the wall, meaning he is a man who, of a godly character, will always give to others in need. Remember, as God bears fruit, spiritual fruit in your life, or blesses you monetarily or spiritually, physically, it is not for you. It is for you as a godly man, you will always be willing to see how you're going to serve and give to others. The wall meaning your neighbor, to your left or to your right. How are you going to do that? But that's the godly character that God wants in you and I. It's not about what can I gain. It's what God, what do you, whatever you give to me, what do I do as good stewards? How do I bless others? Because a godly man always thinks of others. They're other-centered. They're not self-centered. And that's why we see the characteristic. And remember, throughout the, 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 the time we've been spending uh, talking about Joseph, Joseph is a type of Jesus. So the characteristics we've been seeing in Joseph's life mirrors the, the characteristics of Jesus, our Messiah. And so here we see that Joseph is going to be blessed. He's going to be uh, fruitful. He's going to be a man of giving. He's going to give to others, materially blessing others. Because remember, he's going to get the double portion. He's, been, he's already been inherited the double portion. He's going to be blessed already. And he didn't take that, and so he says, oh, I have more. No, he's giving out. Now, Jacob could say this is because he was, for, uh, for much of his life, you know, it was amazing how God took uh, Joseph because he, he didn't start off well, remember. But what happened is that God's doing a work and bringing him around and doing and using him in a tremendous way. And he actually, God uses Jacob to dis. To, to, to pick five, uh, five great titles of who God is in the life of Joseph. And it reflects it. You notice it here. The mighty God of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone of Israel, the God of your father. All of those are godly characteristics to describe the man of Joseph of who he became. And that's not because Joseph was a perfect man. That's not because he did everything right. But because God had working in and through this man's life and brought him through tremendous things. Remember, look, re remember what the scripture says. Not only was he blessed and he gave to everyone, it sounds like a beautiful, perfect life. But look at the continue of the verses. The archers have bitterly grieved him and shot at him and hated him. So his, as God is blessing him and God is making him fruitful and as he's giving to others, He's got people like sharpshooters from 100 and 200 meters away got a scope on this man trying to take him out. So it's not like he had an easy life. The archers were looking for an opportunity to, to put a hole through him. But he had, God had to protect him and provide for him and keep him safe for his purposes. And so it's not an easy life that he lived. He was... He was, he was Abandoned by his brothers and wanted him killed, then sold into slavery. And God had to, he had to work for three years, remember, uh, 
seven years, correction, seven years, remember, first as a slave to Potiphar's house. Now, anyone else would say, get me out of here. How can I escape? But he didn't. God used that for his good. Then he was when moved up because of the prophecy that took place. He's now in, uh, in, uh, in uh, uh, Pharaoh's household. And remember, he was in jail. Remember, and he was a butler and the baker in the three years. Again, how do I get out of jail? No, God used that in Joseph's life to bring about a godly character that God could use. Why? Because now he is now double portioned. He's now in inheritance of the family. Now he's going to be used by God in a mighty way because he's been prepared by God. So you and I have to connect that. Connect the, connect the dots here, right? The Holy Spirit's connected the dots. God is going to can bless you and have you fruitful and you'll be so others focused and serving others and doing what your God's called you to do. That doesn't mean you have this perfect, uh, uh, perfect life with no challenges and no issues and, and, and you just have this you know, wealth and, and just prosperity and, and wealth and health and all this junk that's being taught out in churches today. You're going to be refined by God and according to his way, just like Joseph, but it's going to bring about a character that you too can be a God, a mighty God of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone of Israel, the God of our father, and the almighty. That's what we want to have happen in our own lives. Verse 27, then Benjamin, Benji, the last one, number 12. Dad's little, little lung guy, you know, the one that was protected, the one that... This man, don't let Benjamin die. He's my boy because everyone else is going to die on me here. What happened to Benjamin? Well, God shows through Jacob what Benjamin thinks. Dad says to Benjamin, Benjamin is a ravagousness wolf. What? Dad saying this about Benjamin, the one he loved? You're a, ben you're a, you're a ravagous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. The tribe of Benjamin is very well known in the scripture as a vicious, vicious tribe. We see that in, in those who come out of it. Remember, do you remember Ehud in Judges 3, verses 15 through 23? How about Saul, 1 Samuel chapter 9 and chapter 14? He tried to kill David. How about Saul of Tarsus, Paul, came out of the tribe of Benjamin. The cruelty of that tribe, is you can see it in, in just kind of as clear as can be if you go and read Judges 19 and 20 about that. And then verse 28, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father spoke to them, and he blessed them, and he blessed each one according to his own blessing. So right there, take note in verse 28, the words there, the 12 tribes of Israel is the very first time that phrase is used in the scriptures, in the Bible. And God used Jacob to communicate what the future of the family looks like based on each of the sons or within the tribes. And then verse 29 through 32, then he charged them. 
and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there, which there were purchased from the sons of Heth. So we see here, he says, I've, got, I've said what I needed to say to all you boys. I've said it. Now I charge you, I command you, you make sure that I get buried in the place where Abraham, Isaac, and these others are buried. That is where I'm supposed to be. Back into the promised land. Back to the cave that they, um, Abraham purchased for the burial of the patriarchs. He says, make sure I get there and get buried. That's, that is non-negotiable. And sure enough, what happens in verse 33, when Jacob had finished, when he had finished, when it's finished, what happened? When they had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Man, I hope I go that way. I hope if I'm at my deathbed and I have my family around, I get to communicate and tell them how much I love them and communicate what God's put on my heart to tell them. And then I just get up in my comfy little bed and put my head back and I just finished. I, I, I really want to go that way. That would be great. Rapture would be better. You know me. I'd rather do rapture, but I'm okay with that if that's what God has for me. Don't, it doesn't see any pain. There's no hospice going on here. Well, I guess it would be hospice because he's in his house. He's, living, he's in his bed. He's on his last breath. But he's able to communicate to his kids what, I mean, what man, what father wouldn't want to communicate to their children their last parting words? But yet the work and the plan that God had in and through this family is not done yet. He just communicated to the 12 sons of what it's going to be like in the future for them. And it will continue through the men and through the generation after generation after generation. Truly, Jacob was a pilgrim to the very end. Now, chapter 50. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him. For such are the days required to the, for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. So Jacob had prepared both himself and his family for his death. He told first, he told Joseph, you remember, and I believe this is a very good example for you and I today. You think you're too young, but if you have children, you should be planning what would happen if you should die. Because you have no guarantee for tomorrow. You should prepare your spouse of your, your wishes and what you want to have happen if for some, some reason you died. You should not wait for these things. 
It's, it's really tr troublesome and very hard when your parents are older and they're dying and you have no clue what their wishes are or what they do and what they, there's no plans whatsoever. You should, and this is a perfect example for you and I. He first, J uh, Jacob, met with Joseph and selected him to be the head of his, his inheritance. You're going to be looking over all the inheritance. You're going to be the one that's going to be the spokesperson. You're going to be the, the executor. He communicated privately with him. Then he sat down with all of the kids involved and said, this is what I told Joseph. This is my wishes. So it was clear and concise to all the brothers what Joseph, what God charged Joseph to do. You and I should do the exact same thing. And he made it clear what was going to happen. And there was no disagreements. There was no questions. And no, oh, I don't think, Joseph, you should. You're the youngest and I'm the oldest. None of that. It was clearly made out by the father as a leader to make sure the, the, the sons knew exactly what his wishes were. But it's sad. So many people plan their vacation and their retirement and their business trips more than what happens on one of the biggest events of your life uh, that you will know. You don't know your birth, but you certainly will know your death. But no planning whatsoever and no, any thought. You almost ignore. And there's like three categories of people when it comes to death. Right? Those who completely deny it, like that will ever happen. That's the world today. Then you had the Greeks who had complete, a, a different view that, 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 that somehow they could sustain life, that they could, they, 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 what would we refer to as? It had like a, an accepting view, I should say. The Greeks had an accepting view. It's, we're going to die, and let's all prepare for this. That's how the Greeks kind of thought about it. But what does the Bible say about death? The Bible's approach to death is a death-defying attitude, right? We're going to live for God. We're not going to die. We're just transitioning out of these bodies and going into the presence of God immediately. So how do we prepare the people, and how do we prepare to exit out of this and receive our new bodies. That's a, they should, we shouldn't fear death. We shouldn't just dwell on death, but we should at least prepare so that we are prepared to go to heaven in the presence of God. But here, then Joseph, as he fell on his face and he's weeping, we don't see any of the other sons weeping with him, but certainly Joseph is, and obviously he had his whole entourage, just like the vice president, he never travels without his physician and his nurses. The president and the vice president always travels with his core people. So if something happens, there's someone there to help them to keep them alive. Well, look at Joseph. He had his physicians there, and he says to the physicians, hey, embalm my dad. Let's, he's going to get a, a, a royal treatment of burial because not because Jacob deserved it because he's a shepherd. He's getting royal treatment because of his relationship to who? The son, Joseph. That is why he's going to be treated like royalty here. And he's getting embalmed just like they did here. And they mourn for him for 70 days as like a royal mourning period in Egypt. And then verse 4 uh, then when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying in my, my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. So we don't know why, but Joseph didn't feel like, even though he had a father-son relationship with Pharaoh, he didn't feel like he could go into Pharaoh and ask 
if he could take his dad back to Canaan, back to the promised land there, and bury them in the cave. He ended up asking the XO, the, the executive, those who were surrounding Pharaoh, who helped Pharaoh. He went to his family and said, can you tell Pharaoh that my dad wanted me to move, take him back over here to this place in Canaan, to this cave? And he, and he had me swear to do this. Why he asked, why he felt like he couldn't do it, don't know, but he did certainly do that. So now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And Pharaoh's response said, and Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph, Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went all of the servants of Pharaoh, all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the house of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's house, only their little ones, their flocks, and their herds left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a, and it was a very great gathering. Amazing view of what that was. I mean, that was incredible. Yes, you and your brothers, take your dad and go back. No, Pharaoh allowed elders and of all the elders and all the servants and everybody he needed and everything chariots horsemen everything and they all went from egypt and heading over back up into israel or up into the promised land of canaan and where did they do they came then they came to the threshing floor of atad which is beyond the jordan and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentations and he observed seven days of mourning for his father so they didn't go all the way to the cave. They were on the other side of the Jordan still. They were on a high point on the land. Why? Because it was a threshing floor. That's where they would take the wheat, they would thresh it, they would grind it, and they would get the outer hard um, uh, chaff, and they would grind it. And then the wind, because it was so high up, they allowed the wind to come in and blow the old chaff away, and then they would just get the grain for their wheat for their breads. So, but it was a very large clearing where they did that. So all this huge entourage came up. Where would be the best place for them to spend seven days mourning? A threshing floor, because it was large enough and cleared and flat where that all took place. And that's where they, and they could see from a distance. But notice this. What an entourage, what a, spectation, a spectacle that must have been of all the Egyptians coming up and everyone in the Canaanites seeing this take place. But notice what happened. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the morning of, at the fleshing, uh, threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a deep morning of the Egyptians. Therefore, its name was called Abel uh, Miseram, which is beyond the Jordan, and his sons did for him just as he had commanded them. Now look what happens. This is beautiful. If you didn't catch this in your previous read. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machapalea. Before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite, as property for the burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, and he and his brothers and all who went up with him to bury his father. Catch the scene, my brothers and sisters here. 
Here they are. They've come. They found this place. They're bringing uh, Jacob's body to the place where he'd be. They found this place a distance away on the threshing floor. They mourned for seven days. When they've finished their mourning for the seven days, they now the brothers become pallbearers, and the 12 brothers, pallbearers, carry dad all the way into Canaan to the cave, to the exact place they need to be, bury him, and then they're done. They didn't sit there and stare at the closed cave mourning dad for the next 7, 10, 20 no, they had to go back. They've done their mourning. They've buried their dead. Now they go back to their lives. They have to go back to the new norm. They have to go back and do what they've been called to do. And Joseph was called to be the second man most powerful in Egypt. He couldn't stay in Canaan. The brothers had families, the little ones, the shepherds. They had to go back and be the cattle herders and the sheep herders. They had to go back and go back to work. They're no longer can they be bowing down and staying outside the cave and worshiping and, 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 and paralyzed by the death of their dad. They had to go back and do what God has called them to do. And sure enough, what a moment here, though. Think about Joseph. Joseph is now 56 years of age. It's been 39 years since he's been back to this homeland. Remember, he was 17 when he got sold off by his brothers. And now he's been in Egypt all these years of 39. He's 56. He's coming now back with his dad, back to the promised land, back to his home where he was from. And now he is the new patriarch of the tribe of Israel. Incredible, incredible scene. And when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, verse 15, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which he did to him. Wait a minute, guys. What are you talking about here? The brothers are now fearing Joseph. They've been dwelling in Egypt for 17 years now. They reconciled. Remember, bros? We, we, I revealed myself, and you realize it was me all along, the guy who was the bad guy up on the scene and, and putting all the demands and ushering and giving you food to sustain you and to keep you, to protect you, all these things. And I, we reconciled. We, we weeped and cried and on each other's shoulders. And now you're fearing me that I'm going to now come against you for doing the evil? Of what you did to me? This is what you call guilty complex. They had a guilt complex of what they did to their brother 39 years ago. They still had not moved on and really trusted the words of their brother. Even though the brother made it very clear. Yes, that what you did to me was evil and wicked. But God is the one who was behind it all and was turning it for his good and to protect us and protect the nation of Israel. So I praise God what he did and allowed me to be a slave and to take me through this horrifying life experience these years. Because God, by his design, had a greater purpose. But they didn't believe it. It's, it's a fact here that they did not believe it. They believed that they were not going to be safe. Why? 
because they did not put their trust in the word of the son. They put the trust in the word of the father being around. I am safe. I am protected because my dad is in control. Now, we shouldn't put anything on there, brothers, because that's exactly what happens today, does it not? Kids will say, my, I, I'm, yeah, are you saved? Are you born again? Did you, do you, are you a child of God? Well, yeah, my parents are Christians. That's not going to save you. My grandmother, my grandfather, they're very godly. Not going to save you. Well, my spouse, now, she is a godly woman. Praise God for you because you're a mess. But she ain't going to save you. Now dad is out of the picture. Dad's not going to save the brothers. In their mind, they're dead men because now little brother is in complete control of everything. Their entire, entire livelihood is based upon Joseph the son. Now remember, Joseph is a picture of who? Jesus Christ. Unless you put the trust in the word that comes from the son, you will continue to live with the guilt complex that you have. The only way you can overcome your guilty complex is by giving your guilt and shame and grief over to the one who can what? Save you and forgive you. And it's only one, and that is Jesus Christ. Because they could not believe and trust in their brother. They could not trust that it wasn't the father that, that saved them or protected them. It was the fact that God had changed the heart of Joseph, and it was Joseph's own words of forgiveness that actually sets them free. But it all begins with faith. Remember, we studied that, that they had to, by faith, trust that Joseph was telling them the truth, that he forgave them. Even though all of the, all of the examples, everything he, Joseph said, everything Joseph has poured out into their lives, protecting their lives, giving them land in Egypt and Goshen to provide for them and protect them, did everything for them. But they still could not believe his words by faith. They still doubted. But that's no different than some professed Christians today who are constantly worried about God's judgment and whether or not he's really forgiven them or made them his children. How many Christians I know and see and experience where I hear they trust God, but then at the same time they mess up and they think, God, that's it, God is now going to judge them. God is going to come now down and smite them like he hasn't forgiven them of their sins of past, present, and future. Romans 10, 17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 1 John 5, 13. These things I have written to you 
who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So here, they freely acknowledge they're vulnerable, something's going to happen, what is going to, Joseph's going to do, and then what happens? They did not have the guts to approach Joseph, verse 16, so they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespasses of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespasses of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph, what? Wept when, he, when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Amazing moment here. They didn't have the, 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 the relationship enough to trust that they could go in front of him and say, are you still mad at us? We want forgiveness, please. We want a loving relationship. We want a relationship, not just some arrangement here. So they sent messengers. And then they hear that Joseph starts weeping. Why did he weep? Because he wept because of the fact that they still did not believe. It's just like the disciples that were following Jesus, and Jesus looked over him and saw the multitude, and he just wept. Why? Because there were all these people coming that didn't trust and didn't believe. They were just following and trying to get the food and something out from him, but didn't really put their trust in their life with him. And so they came up with a story. They send messages that says, Dad told us to tell him that please forgive him. I think that was a complete lie. I think they fabricated that to try to do it. But once they saw Joseph wept, he didn't get angry and showed that he was just grieving over this relationship, that that's when they came in and bowed themselves down and said, Behold, we are your servants. You are our Lord. We serve you. And that's when it all took place at that moment in time of that relationship. But the brothers cannot earn their brother's forgiveness acceptance. Remember in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. They couldn't earn. They couldn't do enough. They couldn't correct. They couldn't do anything to earn God's love any more or Joseph's love any more than Joseph was already loving him. And then Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Can you imagine the calming words that was to their ears? Do not be afraid, for, I, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it, up, bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will, bring, I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So we see just the grace and the gentleness, the humbleness, the love of Joseph, the characteristic of this godly man. Don't be afraid. 
God says to you and I, don't be afraid, come. He says, who am I? Am I replacing God? I'm not God. I, I'm not going to have vengeance on you, my brothers. Because vengeance, we see in the scriptures, vengeance is whose? Is God's. He says, if God wants to bring a vengeance upon what you've done, God will do it to you. It won't be me because I'm not the one who's going to be vengeance. I'm telling you I've accepted, forgiven you, and loving you, and I'm going to actually continue to speak kindly, continue to provide for you and your families. I'm going to do exactly what God's called me to do. So there's no fear. Trust the words that I give you. And God says the same thing. Jesus says to you, same thing. Don't be afraid. Come to me. I will give you rest. I'll be your provi provider, your protector. Will you trust his word? And he made it very clear what he was going to do and how he was going to help them. And jo Joseph's love for his brothers was shown just absolutely clearly, not only in his feelings, but also his words and his actions, all lined up for his love for his brothers. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. So he actually got to see his great-grandson, right, grandchildren. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. So he had relations with them, bouncing them on the knee like a grandparent. I mean, what a blessed man he was right there. And Joseph said to his, brother, to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him. And he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So we see here at the very end of the book of Genesis that now Joseph is 110. As you notice, Abraham and the age is continuing of each patriarch is getting less and less and less. He only made it to 110. And we see that he came to the point where he's, again, communicating. He's having a full life. He's interacting with his kids his grandkids what a blessed man he is and when he gets to the point he then gets a, a guarantee an oath from the children of israel okay i'm about to die don't leave me in egypt make sure when you guys leave take me with you and go to where to the promised land and we know in exodus we see that happening but that did not take place until 400 years later from this approximately he was put in a coffin, but he wasn't buried. He sat in the coffin above the ground for 400 years before they moved that coffin. At least it was a lighter coffin, right? It was just bones that they were moving at that point in time. But they moved him to move him to the promised land, and they promised, and sure enough, yes, they did. And we see that and confirmed in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22, uh, that Joseph would never be buried there in Egypt, but buried uh, uh, into the promised land. And they would carry them into a great, uh, great moment in time. So Joseph died looking forward to God's unfolding plan of redemption. 
And that is where the book of Genesis, the book of beginning ends. And it concludes looking forward to the family future. And as we continue through the Old Testament, uh, when we get back into it, we will see the continuation of God's eternal, loving, and wise plan all the way through to the book of Revelation. Amen? Praise the Lord.